As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Sam Barham, currently Chief Monkey at Balancing Monkey Games. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm talking to Sam. How are you? Good. It's been a, it's been a long day for for you. I appreciate you staying up. Uh, it's it's one of the the funny things I guess that I have when it comes to this show is talking to people from all around the world at various different times, which means different time zones. And in this particular case, you being in uh, in New Zealand a couple of hours ahead, it's it's nice, convenient for me. A little less so for you. So I do appreciate the fact that you've stayed up to have this chat with me today. Thanks so much. Oh, no worries. Thank you. It's it's cool to be on. And I'm really, yeah, really looking forward to having the conversation. A, a mutual friend helped us get in touch, John Cartwright. Um, fantastic, fantastic man. I guess for anyone um, uh, listening in, that that's a past episode there. So I guess plug, go check that one out. But I'm really, really looking forward to having a chat to you and about all that you've done over the years because there's some really fascinating sh- stories. I expect that we'll spin off some of the things that we're going to be talking about shortly. But before we get to all of that, this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from around the globe. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey has led to this current point in time. But even before we get to all that stuff, all the career work, I'd love to rewind to a time before you were actually creating games and I guess focusing on some of those early exposures to video games. Do you recall what the first game or games were that you, that you encountered and played? Oh, wow, that's a good question. It's always um, a deep cut. It's always a hard one. Like the opening like question the, to get people to really, go to scratching really that back. Really, the first game? Oh, um, amongst the few. The first that you remember, I guess. Uh, yeah. The first one that I remember the name of was Eye of the Beholder on my Amiga 500. Oh, yeah, um, I know the one. But, I mean, that's when I was in early high school. Um, so, I mean, I'd encountered games before that. I just couldn't tell you the names of any of them. Yeah, I'm with you. And what was what were some of those first um, experiences like? Do you, I mean, do you have any particularly fond memories from any of those sort of tiles from that period? Oh yeah, lots. Um, I mean, the one I always tell um, the younger generation to make them make me feel old is how I, I really loved that I got my extra half megabyte of memory for my Amiga <laughs> so that I could play Eye of the Beholder, um, or playing the original Civilization, which had a bug where you could tell your workers to do something and wake them up and do something and wake them up and do something and it would complete it in one turn instead of four. Um, that was a good time. I think I missed the original Civ, so I don't think I was ever quite uh, privy I think I jumped on with Civ 2, if I remember. I think that was my first uh, yeah. Civilization. Yeah. But, um, that's looking, that's a handy looking, little bug, though. Looking back at old screenshots, it was, it was a bit rough, but that's okay. It was fun at the time. Nature um, of the beast, and I mean, look at where Civ is today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot can yeah. change in just a matter of a few years. Absolutely. How did those tastes grow and develop as you as you got older, and I presume you know, got more exposure to different consoles, to PC games, all of those sorts of things? Where where did your tastes kind of trend? I guess as you were growing up. Um, I've always I've always loved making things. Um, so you know, making models or. Um, painting miniatures. I played war games for a while before it got too expensive when I had kids. Um, yeah, it's not a cheap hobby. 
<laughs> no, no, it is not. Uh, and so, I mean, I played all kinds of games, but I, I did kind of tend to gravitate towards um, either strategy things or things where you're building something, um, you know, city builders and, and that kind of thing, but also um, more abstractly, you know, like puzzle games and stuff. Um, yep. I also love a good story, um, you know, love Mass Effect, love all those sorts of things. Yeah, there's some fantastic titles there, and uh, mm. certainly with a with a number of those, I'm you know kind of building this through line that's going to lead to some of our later conversation here. So, um, I'm really fascinated to kind of see how some of these early experiences connected with with some of the the modern works in the under mm. you know Bouncing Monkey Games. But I guess obviously we still got a little way to go before we get to all that. Was there a was there a game at all or a collection of experiences that perhaps guided you towards the pursuit of actually making? video games because the first steps weren't in games themselves they were kind of adjacent in a number of ways but yeah. I mean, um but not yeah. directly in that space i mean I've, i was by the time i started working in games i'd been a computer programmer in various forms for 19 years yeah um which i think you know goes back to that loving building things you know it's just building things in software um I remember yeah, someone seeing a quote, I can't remember where it's from, a quote talking about programming as building things out of infinite thought stuff, um, which is pretty cool. It's a um, very high-level way of looking at it too. It is, it is. Anyway, I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> uh, just in terms of how those how those experiences actually guided you towards, or were those experiences what kind of guided you towards actually pursuing development yourself? Because, there, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, and I guess I even bundle myself in there, where I immerse myself in video games. I play tons of video games. I write about video games on the daily. I'm writing news. I'm writing reviews. I'm recording podcasts, all those sorts of things. Yeah. But I've not made that jump, as millions and millions of others haven't as well, haven't made that jump to actually creating them. And mm. for you, you've obviously gone on to do that. So, you know, do you feel like that was a, a culmination of those experiences? Was it was it one single game on its own where you've realized, oh my God, like, you know, this is, this is it. This is the the re- like the path in through this experience was there was there any sort of light bulb moment for you like that i don't think so um so i think i came at it more from the from the programming side so it's like you know i love games i love playing games i love all kinds of games um but no none of the and through you know through my life i would occasionally have a go at making a game just you know a little sort of hobby projects that never went anywhere yeah um including like board games and trying to invent role-playing games when I was a teenager, which of course goes nowhere. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't that I loved games, so I wanted to make them. It's that I love making things and I love games, so I wanted to make them. So it was more of the the wanting to make things and having and the, the programming interest. skills that lead into games because I like games rather than being like, I just played Zelda and I really want to make the next Zelda so I'm going to get into games or, you know, whatever. I've never actually played any Zelda games. I'm almost um, entirely a, a Windows a PC gamer. Yeah, okay, that's that's fair enough and um, a really fascinating sort of pathway in because obviously, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories where it's, you know, kind of drawn from that love of maybe looking to replicate, to use an exa- example you cited there, you know, to, to create a Zelda yourself. I certainly remember, and obviously as we've discussed, I haven't actually gone into the act of making games myself, but I, I remember at a very young age, myself and my cousin, we'd sit down and we'd just kind of plot out Zelda dungeon maps as mm. kind of like, the, you know, our, our ideas of what we'd seen based on playing um, A Link to the Past or something like that back back at 
I know the sprightly age of four or five or whatever we were at that point. <laughs> Probably far yep. too young to be playing it, but anyway. Um, so it's it's always kind of fascinating to, to to in your especially in your case here to kind of see that those two loves were there in terms of the the creation of things and video games, but then that recognition that well I can I can combine those two into something, yeah, as well. Um, at what point did that kind of emerge for you? Because uh, as we kind of start to move towards your career, um, Animation Research Limited, uh, s- several different di- uh, different so- uh, works over that time from uh, Animation uh, Squirt, the, the kids' TV show. Uh, you were doing, uh, you were building a data maintenance system for air traffic control, training suites. You've uh, yep. done 3D graphics for Sky Cricket. So they're obviously quite different sort of roles and none of them really maybe the closest in terms of I guess interacting with with people on the other side in a in a consumer sort of way is maybe maybe squirt but even then the nature it's a passive experience versus a a very active one in the act of playing video games Mm. um how did those opportunities at the beginning first emerge and was there always an interest to take maybe what you were learning from there and bring it across to video games or had you not quite gotten gotten to that point yourself at um, that stage no i've i've i mean i'm kind of a in some ways kind of a passive person um so there was never like this this goal i was aiming towards it was never like i want to get into games yeah it was just you know i finished my degree and i was like i guess i should get a job and one of the um the computer graphics um professor at university was one of the directors of animation research limited and he was like well do you want a job um so i became the animator yeah i did a bit you know became the animator for squirt for a while and then yeah went on to other things at animation research limited live sports graphics and various things um so it was just kind of following the next thing you know um i did wind up working in games for a couple of years at a place called straylight studios around 2006 2007 yeah um but that was that was like work for hire for other people so we weren't making our games; we were helping other people make their games. Um, and then, unfortunately, the global financial crisis came along and killed that. Yeah, um, the, that that same kind of, I guess, pattern played out here mm. as well with the the way it kind of completely decimated the Australian scene. So it's a bit of a shame yeah. how it kind of affected, I guess, both of our homelands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a bit, bit interesting. Um, but yeah, then I was you know just on to the next thing. So I was at um, AD Instruments doing. Um, software for their their um, life science education software and wound up doing um, DevOps and you know server infrastructure and stuff and then on to Education Perfect doing server coding and that was where I sort of started the whole um, you know doing game dev as a hobby that turned into um, what is now Balancing Monkey Games. But well, it was well, it mean, was it... there was you know there was no sort of trying to break into games. It was just doing the next thing that was in front of me well uh i mean certainly you know mentioning education perfect has obviously kind of pricked my attention there with me being a being a teacher professionally that's that's something i certainly still hear a lot about even today um i've got quite a few colleagues that will use education perfect pretty regularly for some for some of their content and some of their subjects at, at my high school that i teach at so um really fascinating to hear that you had a little bit to do with that as well yeah yeah it's a pretty cool job yeah kind of cool how these things kind of collide um it is but uh, so 
I guess along the way, we, we kind of cited a few other things. So we've, we've spoken about squirt. There was yeah, um, air traffic. Like What, what was uh, preparing uh, a system for air traffic control training specifically like? Because, I mean, making was, sure there, that those planes are coming and going as they should is, is a fairly yeah. fairly big deal. That was, that was pretty cool. They actually... Um... So they, they taught us how to be air traffic controllers. They did, gave us like a compressed two-week, here's how you work as an air traffic controller course. Um, and yeah, there were a team of 10 of us squirreled away in the uh, back room um, working on this thing. So the idea was that um, you would be able to go into the airways training facility, I think it's in Christchurch, and you'd have this big room with huge screens with projectors you know, shining at them, and a console that looked like an air traffic controller's console but had all screens that were customizable. And then you'd have people in the background that were pretending to be the pilots and, you know, flying the planes and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah. It was actually, believe it or not, it was to replace their existing training system, which was um, a loop of wire running off a sewing machine motor, I believe. <laughs> and they would hook model planes to this wire and they would, you know, go down the wire and let, quote unquote, land on a model airport and then take off again. And this was how they trained air traffic controllers. Right. That's um, um, a far cry from what I guess you were involved with and what we'd kind of even come to expect yeah. typically. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Um, I remember them saying that uh, an air traffic controller is not allowed to have sole command of an airport until they've they've encountered all the different kinds of weather that a given airport um, has. Um, you know, different places will have different kinds of common weather systems that happen. And it might be that you're, you, you work at a place for years and there's one particular weather, weather system that just never happens to happen while you're there. And so, so you're not allowed to have sole charge. Um, right. So one of the many things they wanted the simulator for was they can simulate this weather system and how the planes react to it and certify you so that you can have sole charge, um, was the idea. Yeah, that's really fascinating because, yeah, otherwise it could be a very, very long wait for someone if they've hmm. just just been unlucky, really. Like the, yeah. And making that, I mean, there's obviously a bit of luck for a lot of people in a lot of professions in terms of making that next step and progressing further in the, in their industry of choice, but, you know, luck of the weather's not not one of those that you really want to be putting your faith in so um yeah, yeah. it's fantastic i think that you you put together such a system that or you know kind of worked on such a system there to mm. to help others make that next step um was that something you really enjoyed in the end and some of the challenges yeah. that come with that it was awesome it was a great fun time um you know we we um we had a like obviously we had the, the room where we were all working and then another room at the other end of the building we were setting up our simulator for, for testing it um, and there was a day when we invited friends and family to come and see what we'd been building. Um, and it was, I, I guess it was, it was cool enough outside that everyone had their jackets, but you know, it was warm inside, so you didn't need them. Um, and then on the simulator, we were running a simulation of a storm. So there was rain apparently hitting the windows of this simulator room on the projectors and you know the noise of wind blowing and everything and everyone that walked into this room zipped their jackets up and huddled up right um, just because of the you know the that realism of you're standing in this room looking out these giant windows at a 
simulated airport with rain battering the windows and all the rest of it. Really breaking the fourth wall there with that one then. That's yeah, that's yeah, fascinating. That was amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure a bit of study that could be done into that too as to how, how and why people are reacting such a way. But that's more mm. of a psychological sort of thing. So we'll, we'll yeah, leave yeah, that yeah. to the Sykes to try and crack the case on that one. <laughs> um, and look, I, I have to touch on the... Uh, I'm a cricket fan, so to be working yep. on some of the, the Sky Cricket coverage there, what, what, what was that like as well? Um, I guess it's a bit more simple. There's a, there's a degree of kind of static stuff that's going on there. But um, what was it like to be developing some, uh, from, I guess, some resources there for Sky Cricket? It was pretty crazy. Um, most of my war stories start with when I was working in the cricket, such and such happened. Um, right, okay. I thought this might have been a simpler one, but they're war stories. No. Okay. Oh, gosh, no. Um, I mean, the, the, the software was, it was a little bit janky. Um, and you had, so you had two operators. One person was just sitting there entering the data. Because especially yeah. if you've got a fast bowler, because um, we were doing it all manually, this was before any kind of camera tracking of the ball. So okay. every ball, you had to be like, okay, so they the it, it bounced there and it got, kind of went that high, and then it, they hit it over to there and it kind of went that high. You're dragging these controls to decide about where the ball went and then right. enter whatever the score was, and you had to do that before the next ball was bowled. And, you know, if a fast bowl, fast bowler, which one's the one with the short run up? Oh, the, the spin um, bowls are the, the yeah, spin yeah. bowls are your short run. Um, the short run ups, you, you had very little time to do that. So someone was just beavering away doing that. Um, and then you had it, that, that computer was networked to another computer. Um, someone was sitting there, you know, and the commentators would be like, hey, can you call up the last three overs of Bob or whatever and, you know, show that spread and setting up the, the flyover they wanted to see or whatever. Um, but you know, there's there's the that's like that side of things was fairly simple. But then you've got the practical side. You know, you're travelling every second day to a new city and setting up. Um, like your day was literally um, travel and set up, game and pack down. Travel and set up, game and pack down. The only day. So you imagine much more than the eight-hour day for sure. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Um, we really loved it when there was a test match that got rained out because you actually got days off paid days off i'd imagine too yeah i think so good to hear um, um yep. and i guess being based in new zealand i'd imagine there'd be the uh, the occasional rained out match as well yep yep which is uh yeah i guess considering what you've just said probably a good thing you get that uh, that little break <laughs> that paid break as well so yeah yep. and it's and a stick um, for five days so some days that helps as well yeah 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 and yeah so that that also took me to to bangladesh and to india briefly oh cool um, which were both interesting experiences. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've never been to... Well, I actually, I haven't been to either country, but I haven't been to the cricket uh, there either. And I'd imagine working there, uh, working especially in India um, during a, a cricket match of really any sort of scale would be a pretty full-on experience. Yeah, it was It was certainly not something I'd experienced before. Um, I don't... I, th- I think the match... I was, I was only there for one match to sort of train other people to use the system oh yeah um and i think that was just a a relatively local match you know before the the big one or whatever um but yeah it was still it was pretty big um pretty crazy yeah pretty crazy pretty noisy they they Mm. they love their cricket um and they are very loud and proud about it so yep um i'm sure that would have been a fascinating experience i'm sure one day i'll actually go to a match over there and actually get to experience myself but um those that that's a trio of really fascinating experiences there the next uh the next thing here and i apologize i i lent on your linkedin a little bit to kind of fill in some of these gaps 
Right. The next one here, uh, we've got, got, I've got you listed as a deployment architect. What did that kind of involve? So that was um, when I was at AD Instruments, um, which I think is the place I've worked at for the longest, but I can't actually remember. Um, it was, so we were we were building something called Cura Cloud, um, which yep. was their, their new educational system. Um, and the, the deployment architect or the DevOps um, architect was all about designing all of the back-end server architecture and the systems for controlling it. Um, so, you know, there were a couple of teams beavering away making the software that would actually run Cura Cloud, both the front end that you see and the back end of all, you know, accessing the databases and crunching the data and all that kind of thing. Um, and then my job was um, delivering the servers and deploying the software to the servers and setting it up to um, scale with load. So if 50,000 more people turned up, more servers would be spun up and added to the pool and then spin them back down again when you don't need them and have database systems running of the appropriate size. Because the bigger a system is, of course, the more it costs. So you want yeah, it yes. to be to scale up and down as you can. And, um, you know, all the sort of um, both security protections and disaster prevention things. So, you know, if something goes wrong, how do we find out about it and who do we call and that kind of thing. And yeah. Yeah, I'm following. That's, and that's, I mean, this is a collection of really fascinating stories all before we even get to the act of making video <laughs> games. Um, I'm really fascinated by all of these. Almost cool. feel bad the fact that I'm going to pivot us towards uh, Balancing Monkey now. But um, how, how did that, begin so like i know and you were even kind of citing it before that you you were kind of working on some little game related things over the years as little hobby projects mm. but when did it go from a hobby project to i think i'm like i, I make video games that's my that's my day-to-day -day now yeah like when yeah. when did that kind of happen and how did you realize that you kind of hit that point um there were i mean there's a there's a very obvious point but i need to tell you things to lead up to it so it all started actually because my wife finished her master's in psychology um nice. and so she had been you know locked away all the time she could possibly spare in the in the study working on her thesis and then she submitted it and got a distinction which we're super proud of and then it was like cool it's my turn i've you know i've always wanted to make a game um, and maybe now I'll, I'll give it a proper go. You know, I can. Our kids were still youngish, but at that point they were old enough that it was okay for one of us to be not completely involved 100% of the time. Yes, right. Um, and so I started. I dream working... of that day, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> I said I dream of that day. By the way, mine are two and four. We're not quite there yet. Ah, so yeah, yeah. So mine are to that point where we can kind mine of. Mine are 19, 17, the... and 14. I'll um, get there one day. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I started working on a prototype and it was too big and then I started working on another thing and I was I quite liked it and I was showing it to friends and family and the response was, yeah, it's okay. Um, so I was like, eventually I listened to them. I was like, no, they're not saying this is the best thing ever, so I'm going to drop it. Then I started working on what was going to be before we leave. Um, and then there were a few things that that just turned out right for me so I think part of it is just I'm a conscientious kind of person and I wanted to do it right um, and I knew that there were things I wasn't ever going to be good at like marketing and PR and stuff yeah. so um, I found a, a online um, conference just of videos of various different indie devs talking about the business of game development called Pro Indie Dev 
and the guy that ran that, Gabriel dos Santos in Brazil, um, then also did a course called FGGS, Finish Good Games That Sell, uh, which was just diving into how do you not just make the game you want to make, but a game that's actually going to sell um, and be good and all that kind of thing. So I was, I was doing a lot of learning. Uh, and then I entered in uh, in the New Zealand Game Development Conference. There's a thing called Kiwi Game Starter, uh, which is a competition for beginning game devs. Um, and the prize money is like $25,000, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not very much when you're trying to make a game. But it's still, you know, decent chunk of money. So I entered that, um, and I was a finalist. I didn't win. Um, the woman that won totally deserved to. She'd been a finalist two years running, and it was kind of her turn. Well and truly um, her time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but through that, someone else who was a, a New Zealand game developer who had, you know, they had a really successful game, and they were looking to pay it forward. Um, and they came to me and said, you know, I like the look of what you're making. Would you like some funding to help you make your game? And I assumed that he meant, like, you know, I'll give you a couple of thousand dollars to help you buy some better art assets or whatever. But no, it was enough money for me to work full-time for a year and hire an artist and hire someone to do PR and marketing. Um, wow. You know, just part-time and that kind of thing. So I had to pay, take a, a large pay cut. Um, I was on pretty good money, and I had to, to cut that by, like, a third. Um, but luckily, we'd been overpaying our mortgage, so we could just, like, Put that slow down a little bit yeah. yeah um and yeah so i started the um the prototype as a hobby in december of 2018 uh and no january of 2018 and then december of 2018 i became a full-time work from home game developer um which was pretty terrifying i'd never worked by myself i'd always worked for a company um but i took the plunge and it worked out and do you feel like i mean obviously there might have been a bit intimidating at first for the reasons you just highlighted there but hmm. once you actually got into the the day-to-day did you feel like you settled into that pretty quickly and pretty easily or did you kind of early on recognize or oh, like there's there's certain skill sets here that i need to need to really work on and develop and maybe the the fact that you don't have maybe the next person up in the chain even potentially guiding a little bit um did was that a potential problem what, what sort of obstacles did you feel like you faced at first? Or did you really um, take to it quite well? I, I Mostly I took to it quite well. Like I said, I'm pretty conscientious. And, you know, I'd just taken someone's money. So there were days where it's like, I don't want to do this, but I took someone's money, some, took someone's investment, so I'm going to do it anyway. Extract whatever I can out of the day, yeah. And there were days where I would finish the day of work and just be like, oh, the creative journey sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> but I still went back the next day Um I think, um, you know, I'd, because I'd already recognized that there were things I didn't know how to do and I'd started working through the, the Pro Indie Dev conference videos and the FGGS um, system and all that kind of thing, I was kind of already learning about the things that I knew I was never, I, I knew I was never going to be any good at them, but I was learning enough that I could have an intelligent conversation with someone else who was going to do them for me. Yep. So that was really good. Um and I think it was it was also really important that I, because I'd already been working as a as a full time, but not overtime, de- software developer for like nineteen years, and I just deliberately and explicitly kept that going. So I still worked, you know, eight thirty to five or whatever it was, um, even though it was 
a six meter commute instead of a 20 minute commute um it was like i will be at my desk at the same time and i will stop working at the same time and i will maintain some routine not go back and work in the evenings and that kind of thing uh, uh, I respect that completely, but w- uh, what about the pandemic? Did that change things a little bit? Obviously, you're already working from home, so there's probably a lot of stuff that you were pretty well entrenched in anyway. Mm. But the nature of the pandemic, did that have any bearing at all on how you went about your work? Not really. Um, so um, by the time the pandemic hit, I had um, a programmer working with me as a contractor, um, Isaac, who's um, still with me and is now my lead programmer and technical artist um so he had he just lives down the hill from me um he had been coming up to my house every day um so we worked side by side in the study at the back of their house um so the pandemic meant that there were you know a bunch of weeks where he was working from home instead um but other than that i mean you know we were still working and on the same thing from the same place it didn't really impact much um we were already used to remote working because the you know the 3d artist was in poland and the composer was in england and the yeah, you already had the to guy doing the pr zones. was in america and so on so you know we were already used to remote working and time zones and all the rest of it um so i think that the, the really the only impact of the pandemic from our point of view is that games did better because people were stuck at home looking for something to do. Yes. Yeah, we still hear a lot about that now, I guess, when we're kind of more so on the other side of things and console sales or game sales are starting to drop a little bit and there's you kind of see some hot takes every now and in the in the media where they're saying, oh, no, like, what, what's happening? And I think the reality is, kind of as you're saying, we saw this big boom because people mm. were at home. Now that they're not at home, there's a, there's a natural degree of drop-off. We're obviously going to retain quite a few people, but there's going to be a natural degree of drop-off. And it sounds like uh, you managed to really bob up at just the right time, I guess. Mm. Yep. Yep. Um, So how how did uh, Before We Leave actually come about in the first place? We obviously touched on some early game influences there that I could certainly see uh, strands of DNA Mm. um, being present. But how did the idea spring about in the first place? Was was that always what you had in mind? How How did Before We Leave actually begin? Well, the, the the actual genesis of it was, um, so in Dunedin there's a midwinter carnival um, where a bunch of people make great big, like, um, tissue paper lanterns um, and, you know, parade around the octagon in the centre of town. So there's, you know, there's dancers and there's people with these lanterns. And some of the lanterns are, you know, just single person with a wee lantern. Some of them are like a dozen people with poles holding up the thing the size of a small building kind of thing um and the first time we went um me and my wife and my kids um one of these great big lanterns was a whale with a bunch of skyscrapers on its back and i just turned to anna my wife and i said i have to make a game with that in it um and i think this was before i'd started this was before i'd started doing game dev as a hobby um so the the and I've always you know I always loved city builders. Um, these clear I think um, influences of like the settlers games and the Anno series. Oh yeah, um, yep. And you know that kind of thing. So I was like, cool. I want to make a city builder because you know I'm a programmer and they're pretty systems heavy. So you know that kind of fits. And I started trying to make a city builder on the back of a whale. 
and that was just it was just too big it was too complex there were too many things that i couldn't do like i couldn't 3d model a whale to save myself so i gave up on that and um made a thing that was on a tiled planet like before we leave but it was more of a real-time strategy-ish kind of thing um and yeah, then cool. i just kind of merged the two so i went i went okay let's do a city builder but i like this whole kind of tiled planet thing so i'll keep that um and that yeah just grew from there kind of thing and look i think ultimately works uh, works a bit better than the um built built up on the back of a whale we'll leave giant flying whales to someone like hideo kojima um oh well actually you, it's funny you say that because we're working on the sequel now which is on a back of a oh, space you're actually whale. going down that path yeah yeah so we we went we got there in the end oh cool well, I'm excited to see how it all how it all shapes up. Then, I guess uh, nice. learning a few lessons from the from the things that didn't work before, and in terms yeah. of you know building it on a whale. And oh well, now now I'm now I'm really fascinated, and I guess thrilled to hear that 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 early idea is uh, managing to bear some fruit now. Yeah. Um, so we've obviously we've touched on the genesis of it. We've we've already touched on the nature of the development a little bit through through the pandemic and just the how, how things kind of grew from there. When the game finally launched and um, how did you how did you find that initial reception? What, what was it like to to finally put a game out there and then get to see players getting their hands on it? What was what was that experience like for you? It was it was amazing. It was insane. Um, uh, so I mean, you know, we we had um, all these people like playing a thing that I had made and saying they liked it, and that was pretty cool, was right? Pretty pretty crazy. Um, it was also extremely busy because you know it was my first game, so it was it was a little bit um, rough. Uh, so there were at least a couple of weeks there where Isaac and I were literally releasing multiple patches a day um, to fix up issues as they came in. Um, Oof, but that was right, you know, flying by seat of your pants could kind of took me back to the cricket days. And it's a pandemic, um, so what else can you do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um... And, and so, the, yeah, obviously, fan reception was really positive, and um, and obviously, as you said, kept kept you working quite a lot. But then, in time, you you came to bring the game to the consoles as well. What was that like trying to bring yeah. a game such as uh, such as this across to the console space? Um, it was it was a bit interesting. So um, we were so pleased that um, Team Seventeen came along and. Um, partnered with us to publish the game on Steam when we released on Steam, but then they did the console port, so they actually brought in another um, another studio in England, uh, Do oh, Games, cool. and they, they did the port for us. Um, we had already, before before Team 17 turned along, came along, we had decided explicitly we were not going to port the game. Um, we talked it through and went, we're not going to do this, because we had no idea how to go about it, no, we didn't even know where to begin. Um, so having having Team Seventeen and Do Games come along and and take it on was great. Um, certainly there were there were some struggles. I'm very pleased that largely they were Do Games struggles rather than mine trying to take this <laughs> thing that had been you know designed for Windows, designed for keyboard and mouse, and shoehorn it into a console um, controller. Um, method of control was was interesting at times um yeah games but, like yeah. before we leave in the past have typically had their challenges kind of coming across to console we see the the walls mm. breaking down more and more in in recent days or recent years but 
it is still one of the one of those genres that's perhaps every now and then struggled to make that transition. And I must say, like I'll admit, I, I played the game on console and actually had a fantastic time with it. So all all credit cool. to the team; they they did a wonderful job bringing it across to the console. Yeah, yeah. And the um the the next game that we're doing, the sequel, where we're we're not we're not working on the console ports ourselves at the moment, yep. at least because it's still early days. But we are adding in controller support. Um, oh great so that even on windows you should have controller support and it just means that the if and when we do it the act of porting to the console is going to be way way smoother and easier because all of that stuff will have you know it's been designed mapped. in from the start yeah. rather than trying to s- stitch it on over the top yeah that i mean having that that idea the the controller input as a as a pillar within development certainly does help guide a few things and it's yeah when it's there at the forefront um it does make some of the the post work a little bit easier, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've kind of partially answered my next question anyway by referencing the fact that we've we've got a sequel coming. But um, the the game has obviously seen growth since since the initial launch, obviously with the consoles as well. But uh, mm-hmm. what what has that enabled you to do going forward? Into like, I mean, the the team has staffed up. You've staffed up a little bit further, haven't you? Since yeah, yeah. Since so, those days. so. Um, the so originally there was just me and then we added um, Isaac and then Emily our community manager so the at launch there were the three of us yeah um, and then they stopped being contractors became employees um, and then uh, my wife came on as managing director to do all of the finances payroll management all that kind of thing um, and then we hired a producer and an artist and a second uh, or third I guess programmer and um, game designer uh, at the start of this year so now there's seven of us um, and going strong yeah yeah so awesome. what's it like for you as you were touching on before obviously that you you prior to this you'd always been working under someone or for someone mm. and now you are in charge of or at least kind of co-leading with um, several other people what's yep. that like for you now do you feel like as the team has grown in in scope and size, and you've got different people with different skill sets, what does that look like for you in terms of, I guess, even the the level of uh, control is not quite the word I'm looking for, um, but I guess we'll we'll go with it for now. Like that that level of control that kind of gets divided up a little bit more when you've got more people with more areas of expertise. So how how have you handled that as the team has grown? Um, it's it's had its challenges. I mean, you know, as as we sort of talked about, I've I worked for worked for the people, worked for the man for twenty years nearly, um, and so be- becoming the man is not something I ever thought would happen. That's not always um, easy. And it's yeah, I mean, it's had its challenges. We've been very very careful to hire as best we can, hire the right people. Um, the main thing we we try to do is we we hire for personality rather than skills. Um, so you know we obviously we want to hire someone who who um, can do what we need them to do, but within that you know rather than taking the rock star we take the person who's going to be the best person to work with. Um, so that's that still stood us up really well in terms of having people that get along with each other and all that sort of thing. Um, that's that's great. I to do. Hear. I do. I mean, I spend a lot more of my time talking and meeting and advising and deciding than programming, um, which sometimes is frustrating because you know, at heart, I'm a programmer. I want to be making things, and I'm still, you know, I'm still making things. But sometimes it's at one remove. I'm making things because I'm helping someone else to make them rather than yeah, you're doing facilitating it. it. 
Yeah, yeah. Which, um, you know, do you have some days which like kick the admin to the curb? No, sorry, I'm ignoring all these responsibilities. Yep. I just need to get my hands on this thing. Do you do you have those yes. days? Do you allow you to have yep. those those days? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So every now and usually not a whole day, but for for a decent chunk of the day, I'll be like, right, everyone, I'm turning Discord off. I'm putting my headphones on. Shut up and leave me alone, because um, I need to work on X Y Z. You know. It's just a cathartic thing that you get to do from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Partly the cathartic thing, and partly you know, um, I mean, I'm I'm the person with by far the most programming experience on the team. Um, oh, so that's all right. You can so lean you know, on that some, a bit. sometimes it's just like, look, there's this, this tricky bit, and I just need to do it. So, you know, I'm gonna just take it on and get it out of the way, kind of thing. That makes a lot of sense, and I guess allows you to indulge in um, the the original love in the first place. Yeah. So how have some of those experiences, some of the things that we've already discussed uh, with, with Sky, uh, with, with uh, Animation Research Limited, how have some of those roles, is, is there anything that you've brought across from those roles that you feel like has translated well to the game development landscape? Um, I mean, I'm, 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 I can work, I'm good at working fast um, and I'm good at pivoting on the spot and changing what I need to do and just being like, oh, okay, I need to do this other thing instead. Um, That's a trio of pretty which, handy skill sets. Which is, is pretty <laughs> handy. Sometimes it drives um, my workmates up the wall because I keep pivoting on ideas and they're like, no, just make a decision and stick with it. Um, so, you know, I, I try to, to curb that. Um, but when you're the head of a studio, that always happens a little bit. You, you're the creative yeah. brain behind nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and just you know, obviously having having that um, background of, of programming experience, um, I'm, I'm not sure that I would say I'm the best programmer on the team. I'm just the most experienced one. Um, and you know, but having having that um, depth of experience behind me, and as as you commented on, you know, having done all different kinds of things, um, there have been lots of times where it's like, oh yeah, I remember that I did that in a previous job so I've got some idea of how I'm going to do it this time around yeah this one time yeah um, <laughs> so yeah that's that's some of some of it and also just you know in terms of the, the management you know I've, I, all of my bosses have been good bosses um, in, always you know, in, in different ways um, so just having these people that I've I've seen do management from from one side that I can then draw on to to do management from from kind of from their side of the fence um, is pretty helpful too. Yeah, I'm with you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, mm. Is there anything now that you've actually gotten into the 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 day to day of making video games? Is there anything that's uh, that you've come across over the journey that really surprised you that perhaps never considered um, before you actually got involved? Probably, but I'd have to think carefully to come up with what it is. <laughs> There's been several. Yeah, um, I mean, so many days are a surprise. You know, I mean, things like, I mean, the, the first thing that pops to mind is, you know, people literally sending you messages saying this game, I don't know if it was, I'd quite say saved my life, but, you know, like this game has been really significant to me for some particular reason. Yeah, right. Um, it's like, oh, well, that, you know, that gets you in the feels sometimes. Um, and... Uh, negative reviews are an interesting time. Um, that's not something I was always, you know, was entirely prepared for. Hopefully, you've um, not had to pass like, through too many of those. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was our first game, so as I said, it was a bit rough. 
Um, so there are th things that people have pointed out where we're like, yeah, absolutely, it's not as good as it could have been. Um, we'll do better next time. Um, but is it is it but, more when it's yeah. that kind of that vicious sort of what we can sometimes know the internet internet to be that more mm, vicious mm. sort of response that's been the harder one to digest? I'm guessing. Yeah, and we we um we did our very best to build both a game and a community so that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so you know it's it's a largely non-violent game. It's a pretty peaceful, chill kind of a game. Um, when we built the Discord server, we were we operated an extremely heavy ban hammer. There were no warnings. There were no strikes. You, you know, got out of line and we just removed you because we wanted to build a nice community. Um, and that helped a lot that we didn't get some of that really vicious kind of stuff. Um, yeah, okay. In, in our Discord server. And then that flowed over into, you know, when we went to Steam, things were more open. So we did get, you know some you know more open to the internet a bit more but still it was a nice chill peaceful kind of game so it mostly attracted nice chill peaceful kind of people yeah i'm with you well it's good to hear that for the most part the the positives uh, sorry the experiences have been largely positive and hopefully that continues and as you said some of those rough edges likely to likely to not be present in the sequel so yeah hopefully that gives uh any of those people who had an axe, axe to grind potentially last time uh nothing to lean on this time hopefully so, yeah. I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about the the New Zealand game development scene because mm -hmm. it's something that I I don't know necessarily gets dis, uh, discussed as much as it potentially should be. Um, not just he, I guess here in Australia, but acro across the world. Like something that I've been noticing, especially in recent years, and and maybe the uh, pandemics had a bit to do with it in the sense where I've been kind of sitting in front of the computer more and just kind of picking around and looking for more games as well. But a lot of people talk about especially in Australia, a lot of people talk about how Melbourne, which is like, that's my home state, but um, how Melbourne is, you know, churning out, they're, they're doing such a great job with their independent scene and they're churning out such an incredible number of high quality games. The certainly like kind of ratio per capita, all those sorts of things seem to be batting well above our, our average. But when, when people look across, at, you know, or if people haven't already looked across, if people look across at New Zealand and what is coming out of the country on the, on the, the video game side, I think people will come to realize that actually there's there's some incredible stuff going on there from from what from what you're doing obviously to the likes of Rainbite we've got Pickpock who've just put out uh, Shatter Remastered Deluxe we've got Black Salt working on Dredge we've got A44 and what they've done Dinosaur Polo Club and there's more as well mm. um when when you kind of look across at your local scene there what what do you see how do you, how do you feel like things are tracking obviously I've highlighted a few really specific examples there that are you know doing some really genuinely fantastic things but but what else are you seeing because i guess even recently we had um a contingent present at pax australia just recently there was a yeah. there was a, a section there carved out which was which was really fantastic to see because that hadn't been a case admittedly obviously the pandemic's been through the last couple of years and cancelled the event but even in the prior years there wasn't a dedicated new zealand game development scene section but it was awesome mm. to see that this year and it wasn't even a, a New Zealand section. It was actually specifically a Dunedin um, booth. Oh, really? Um, I didn't realise yeah, it was yeah. that specific. So, so there's a, in, in New Zealand, there's a thing called the Provincial Growth Fund, which is a you know government fund of, I don't know, something billions of dollars or whatever to, to fund things in the outside of the sort of the major centres of like Auckland and Wellington. Yep. Um, and through whatever 
shady shenanigans had to go on. Um, <laughs> they managed to get a chunk of um, a few million dollars to set up something called Code, which is the Center of Digital Excellence. And literally, its um, its reason to exist was to turn Dunedin into a game development hub. Fantastic. Um, so they've been doing a heck of a lot of work in schools and universities and Polytech to kind of start building a, a stronger pipeline of people coming through ready to work in games. Um, and then they've been um, doing multiple rounds of, of funding um, game developers. Uh, so they've got, they've got, I think there's three levels. There's like the, the kickstart, which is the please give me thirty, forty thousand dollars to help me build a prototype of my idea. And then there's please give me a couple of hundred thousand dollars to start a studio to bring this prototype to a releasable form. Um, and then there's please give me quarter of a million dollars to help scale my studio up, which is the one that we've um, been awarded. Oh, fantastic. Um, and yeah, that's that's literally why we now have an artist and a third programmer, because we, we got the, the scale got funding grant. Um, and so yeah, all eight, so the Dredge was there separately because they're funded by Team 17 and they're going to do yes. amazing. So they were they were there on their own on their own ticket. Um, but Code set up a booth and there were eight um, games there. Um, so we had before we leave there, we weren't, yep. we're not ready to show off the sequel. So we were telling people that we we're going to do a sequel, but there was nothing to show other than um, cards, physical cards with a piece of concept art on it. Um, but there was also, I mean, there was Abiotic Factor, which is like a half-life looking cooperative survival game where you're a bunch of scientists in a half-life looking disaster and there was Toroa where you're a, a royal albatross flying through the sky and there was um uh is it called it's only money uh um, yeah i think yeah, i remember yeah. a name like which is, that which is thing? i think I've, I've heard it described as um what gta would be if taika waititi was creating it um <laughs> it's just you know GTA style, but madcap and odd. Um, and there was uh, Bustin, which is a mobile game where you're shooting toilet paper at people, um, and <laughs> a few others. Um, so yeah, it was, actually, it was cool. I'm actually a bit disappointed because I was, I was actually my Sunday was of PAX was booked to get over there and and, and check out everything in that section. And unfortunately, we had some health issues in the household, and so I had to skip oh, out no. on that final day. So I missed out yeah. on actually trying out. A lot of the games from the from the yeah. code section there, but um, you know, peering as a, you know, peering in as I wandered by, yeah, there's there's a lot of fantastic titles there, mm. including obviously your own. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing, and it's yeah, quite incredible. And again, for for anyone listening who's not done that time to have a bit of a look in the past, please make sure to do so because the I guess you know, kind of using that language before that get you know gets thrown at Melbourne, that per capita sort of ratio is is quite incredible. Um, so please, yeah, again, make sure to go check it out. Obviously, Dredge does have kind of the spotlight at the moment. As you said, they were kind of there on their own ticket with uh, Team 17's assistance as well. But I, I rattle off a bunch of teams there as well, as well as those that you've you've mentioned yourself that mm. are well worth paying close attention to. There's some really, really cool games coming out of the scene. And um, thanks for sharing a little bit of insight into that as well. No because worries. I certainly didn't know about the um, about the about some of the, those levels of grants. 
it's pretty cool. Um, so as we start to wind things down a little bit, and I guess kind of focusing back in on on you specifically, is there anyone out there that really inspires you in the way you go about your work, or has inspired you in the way you go about your work? Oh, that's a question that wants some preparation. <laughs> yeah, I, I try I try to catch people out on it, but uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, it seems like it's worked this time. Um, I mean, I've already, I've already given a shout, shout out to Gabriel Del Santos, who is so helpful with the the pro indie dev and the FGGS. Yeah. Um, and um, so Patrick was the guy that that originally funded me, and um, Robert from Dinosaur Polo Club, who was my mentor after I um won the the Kiwi Games starter the second time I entered. Um, and. Um, all of the people at Straylight Studios and Runaway, who's um, so Straylight Studios is where I used to work, and the um, GFC killed that, and then the people that stuck around they turned into Runaway Play, who now make um, mobile games based on nature. Yep, um, they're still in Dunedin. They're like thirty or forty people, and going um, strong. They're going strong, and you know, just I've had so much support and love from them, um, and we give it straight back because they're awesome. Um, and oh, Tim uh, Tim Ponting. So he's the the director of Code. Um, he's amazing. He's been in games forever. You know, he used to work to Activ- at Activision. He used to work at print magazines back in the day of game dev and things. Um, he's he's a, an amazing guy. Um, and I honestly wouldn't be here without him as well. So yeah, that's awesome. A few shout outs. Yeah, and um. Obviously, again, as we've cited before, there's, there's plenty of incredible developers in the space as well that I'm sure you're mm. bouncing off on a fairly well, semi-regular yep. basis. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. We've kind of touched on this one a little bit already with, with some of the surprises now that you've gotten into games, but is, have there been any particularly valuable lessons that you've learned along the way, things that now that you've actually gone in and you've, you've seen a game through to completion, it's, it's out there in the market, that are really helping inform what you do now? Any particularly valuable lessons from, from the journey so far? It's harder than you think it's going to be, but it's worth it, and you just need to stick at it. Um, and you need to recognise the things that you can't do but need to be done anyway, and whether you just have to bite the bullet and learn how to do them or find someone to do them for you, you can't not do them. Um, and in the end, whether you like it or not, if you want to make a living off games, then games are a business, and you need to think about Embrace sales, that. and you need to design for the game being a success, and all the rest of it. No, they're, um, they're fantastic yeah. insights, um, and things that I feel like I've been hearing more and more of lately. I think uh, talking to from Ju- uh, to Julian from Massive Monster recently and uh, even just hearing him talk about uh, in some interviews lately because obviously Cult of the Lamb is one of the big games of the year mm, yeah. and he, he's been saying very similar things certainly when it comes to the um, the marketing and the financing and, and the, the quest to be profitable like that was one of the core pillars at the very beginning of the game is okay how like what are we making here that's going to touch on different audiences capture different interests to ensure that we're not going to go bust through this whole process but then after that, let's layer on top of all the things that we love and that we want to inject into this game and make it what we want to make it, despite yeah. that pillar being in there that you know we need to monetize it, we need to be profitable, we need to make money off the player. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, really, really fantastic one. And as we as we wrap up, a couple lighter, fun sort of questions. Cool. 
Yep. If you could be credited for any game, so just retroactively add your name into the credits as being somehow responsible for it, what game would you have loved to have been a part of? Uh, Mass Effect. That's a very quick answer and a really awesome choice. Yep. And... Love Mass Effect. I know people hate on the ending of Mass Effect 3, but honestly, I don't care about the ending. The payoff of it's all journey, of those right? threads of story coming together is just... Yep. It's, it's magic. beautiful. Yeah. Yep. So I guess as we're... Like, we'll just spin off this briefly. As, as we're seeing and hearing little things and we're getting little teasers from N7 Day recently, um, how are you feeling about the prospect of us potentially revisiting a shepherd or at least shepherd adjacent characters if they do it well i'm there i never actually i I tried to play andromeda and i just bounced straight off it and didn't go back so if they do it well that's awesome if they don't do it well eh, that's fine i've I've still got my memories of the old memories yeah good luck to bioware there it's it's obviously a tough ask but um yeah yeah hopefully hopefully they can get somewhere in the ballpark i think if, if they even get close to what they achieved before then we're going to have a fantastic time whenever that game comes out, maybe 2030 at the rate things are going. Um, <laughs> yep. If you could go back and replay any game, strike it from your memory and get to play the game again for the first time, is there a game that you'd want to have that experience with? Um, the one that I've usually said is also Mass Effect. Um, the, other one would, the other one would be uh, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. Oh, yes. Uh, which I've, I've talked about before. It's the only game I've ever cried at. Um, what was it about to, it? Just obviously, the, obviously it's, you know, it covers some heavy themes, but what was it about it specifically? Yeah. Um, it's just getting to the end of the journey and reflecting on it and going, I've just had an experience of kind of what it might be like to live with psychosis and abuse neither of which I've experienced, but to have a game open a window into that kind of world so effectively was just incredible. Yeah, for anyone who's not played the game, and hopefully there's very, very few people um, who've who've not played the game at this particular stage, they 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 put the the message at the forefront when you first play the game that's you know recommended to play with headphones and please absolutely oh, yeah. do that for for the reasons that you've just highlighted the psychosis and those sorts of things and the way the way they use the the headphones specifically in that space to kind of get around you and feel like they're walking around cutting circles around mm. you and all those it is unbelievable and you're you're 100% right it um similar to yourself I've fortunately not had any of those sort of experiences but it really was an eye opener, and mm. um, look, I don't know for, for the sake of what we're talking about in terms of replaying a game and get to experience it for the first time. I don't know if I'd necessarily pick it for that sort of reason because it, it it was it, it shook me a little bit for mm. for those reasons. Um, despite how fascinating it is to reflect upon, it shook me a little bit for those reasons. But I, I can totally understand where you're coming from, though. Yeah, I did. I did replay it, and it it got me again. Um, oh, good. Which was pretty amazing. Well, good, bad. What, yeah, that's that's a perspective thing. But yeah, I follow what you mean. Mm. Um, yeah, wonderful game, and I'm I'm really excited for whenever um, Senua, uh, Senua's next adventure comes out. Presumably next year, we hope. Touch wood oh, at this who point. Knows? Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. don't know. It's Microsoft announced it <laughs> so long ago, but it's we must yeah. be getting close at this point. So I, I basically don't. I, I just stopped looking at release dates because they change so often. It'll be out when it's out. Yeah, exactly. If it's good, I'll play it. 
Exactly. I think that's what it boils down to, yeah. Mm. The longer it takes, the more likely we are to get a better product, right? Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the, on the show, Sam. It's been awesome to get to chat to you and, and learn about this story, for you to share those experiences. And I think, um, I think I speak for everyone listening today when I express my excitement to try out a sequel to Before We Leave somewhere in the future. But uh, if people want to get some of those, those updates, see what's going on, learn more about the project as you're in a position to, to announce more about it, where should people be looking? Um... Social media channels, uh, yeah. Social, so, things. like, we're uh, our main social media channels are um, TikTok and Twitter. Um, we're at Balancing Monkey Games on Twitter. I honestly couldn't tell you the thing to look for on TikTok, but search for Balancing Monkey or Balancing Monkey Games, you'll find us. Um, if you're wanting to, to chat to us, then our Discord server is discord.gg/slash before we leave, um, and we're on there kind of all the time. Um, answering questions and chatting with Except for when stuff. you're turning it off to do some hardcore programming. Yeah, and even then, that's just <laughs> me. Everyone else is still on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, um, that's awesome. Please, uh, everyone listening, make sure to hit them up on the channels there. Keep, keep an eye on the game as it uh, gradually becomes a, a reality. And again, I think I speak for everyone in saying I'm really, really looking forward to, to the time that I can get hands-on with with the, the game in the future. Thank you so much for sharing everything about it. No worries, and I'm really looking forward to getting it into people's hands. <laughs> um, and then, of course, yeah, for myself as well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was really, really fascinating to to learn more about you and your work and this career up until this point, and I wish you nothing but the best going forward, and I yeah, can't wait to see what lays ahead for you. Thank you so much. And Good listeners, luck to you too. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. That includes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Sam's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.